Uh, Raymond's a professor of international relations and Middle East politics at the University of St Andrews in Scotland, so he had a long way to travel. Uh, equally important, he's the co-founder of the Institute for the Study of the Middle East, Central Asia and the Caucasus and the director of the Centre for Syrian Studies. But the reason I was so keen to come here to, to invite him down is he's published uh, three books on Syria that are probably some of the most influential work on my own work on the Middle East. Um, very early on, Authority, Power in Ba'ath Syria, Army, Peasant, Army Party and Peasant, and then Peasant and Bureaucracy in Ba'ath Syria, the Political Economy of Rural Development, and then somewhat later, Syria Revolution from above, which I think are, are superb exercises both in empirically informed area studies, but also in the comparative political science of state building um, and uh, modernity in the Middle East. But beyond that, another very good book is Egyptian Politics Under Sadat, and he's then broadened out, if that's the word, into uh, the international politics of the Middle East, another excellent book uh, published by Manchester University Press in 2003, and a co-edited uh, volume, The Foreign Policies of Middle Eastern States with Lynn Reiner. Beyond that, and we may get to this in questions if not in the talk, he published in, uh, in 2012, I thought, a superb article called Syria from Authoritarian Upgrading to Revolution, question mark, in international affairs, which has greatly influenced my own understanding of the Syrian revolution, uh, civil war, and whatever the hellhole is that Syria is in, in the midst of at the moment. So without further ado, once you've all turned off your mobile phones, I'll give the floor to Professor Hennebush. He'll speak for about 40, 45 minutes, if that's okay. And then uh, questions afterwards. Thank you, uh, Professor Hennebush. Thank you very much, Toby, for your kind remarks and, and the invitation to be here. My topic is Syria-Iraq relations. Uh, these two countries seem to me to be sort of siblings in the sense that they, they were similarly born, if you will, uh, right after World War I. Uh, as somewhat artificial and fragmented states and therefore started with similar problems and they pursued in some respects quite similar tangents in particular uh, the fact that uh, in both cases you had state building under the Ba'ath and subsequently state deconstruction. I want to uh, take I guess what might be called a historical sociology sort of macro approach uh, to this topic uh, Historical sociology, uh, as I see it, uh, allows us to think in two terms. Uh, first, it, it tells us that states and state systems mutually constitute each other. So that's one of the things I want to do is look at this relationship between the nature of the state and the state system. And, of course, historical means that you can't understand the present without looking at the past. And, again, that's, that's what I want to do. In particular, uh, what I want to do is to look at uh, Syria-Iraq relations as they have evolved over time through a number of distinguishable phases, in each of which phase the features or the kind of state is somewhat different, the dynamics of the state system is somewhat different, and uh, these differences are associated uh, with changes in the character of Syrian-Iraqi uh, relations. And basically, what I want to do is to use uh, the Syrian-Iraqi relation to explore the evolution of the regional state system. 
So um, let's begin at the beginning, which is the founding of the state system uh, in the so-called post-World War I settlement in which at the level of the states, particularly in the case of Syria and Iraq, you had the creation of fragmented states which arguably were almost created to fail in the sense that uh, their creation involved arbitrary borders, Syria arbitrarily divided, Iraq arbitrarily cobbled together. Uh, symptoms of the artificiality is that the territory that happened to be assigned to one of the other state could, under other conditions, have been assigned differently. These uh, boundaries, of course, cut across identities, which in some ways were stronger than identifications with these new states in emergence, substate and superstate identities. So that's what's happening at the level of the state. At the, at the level of the regional system, which is now coming into being, it is, of course, because of this uh, way in which it's formed, going to be unstable. Irredentism, dissatisfaction with the boundaries, is built into the state system right at its birth. These new states are going to be highly permeable, buffeted by trans-state identity movements. As for their relations, the severing of what used to be this, uh, a single entity, the severing of Iraq into Syria uh, into two states by borders cuts across all kinds of, uh, of relationships. It cuts across trade routes, for example, between uh, Aleppo and Mosul. It uh, cuts across rivers. It cuts across identity groups, Kurds, tribes left on different sides of the border. What that means is that these two states in some ways are, are born uh, with persistent interdependencies, which these borders artificially cut across. Those interdependencies mean they do share certain interests, but it also means that each is vulnerable to the other if regimes in the, on either side want to use those interdependencies. Uh, they can they can do so. Now, moving ahead to the, what one could say, the first phase of indigenous state building, that is the period in which at the level of the states, we are talking about the emergence of basically oligarchic regimes, fairly weak uh, regimes which are at least formally liberal in their institutions. Uh, but because they are both dominated by great landed magnates uh, and tribal chiefs, they are basically unable to peacefully incorporate the rising middle classes, and so from the beginning they are challenged by the rising middle classes. So weak states, at the level of the state system, these weak, weak states are at this point pretty much dominated by the British hegemon. Britain is still the hegemon in the region. And in this regard, Iraq is the, the linchpin of the British effort to sustain its influence in the region as formal independence approaches. As regards the relations of, of, of Syria and Iraq in this period, this is a period where you have an early version of what we might call the struggle for Syria in the sense that pro-British Iraq and Jordan have ambitions to, in some ways, absorb Syria into uh, projects under the label Fertile Crescent or Greater Syria. 
uh, to defend itself against these perceived ambitions of the two Hashemite monarchies. Syria aligns with Egypt and Saudi Arabia uh, in an attempt to, to balance against uh, uh, Iraq uh, together with, with Jordan. And so uh, that, is, that is the main uh, uh, feature of regional dynamics in this period. But uh, what is characteristic of this period is is that it is Iraq which is very much the actor penetrating Syrian politics uh, using largely pre-existing trans-state ties to Syrian politicians and army officers to try uh, and influence uh, Syrian politics and buffeting Syrian politics in this way. So Iraq is the actor in this period, Syria very much the, the target. Now, the next phase of the age of pan-Arab revolution is about two decades. In this period, at the level of states, what we find, of course, is that the the oligarchies are overthrown by radical military officers and political parties, ushering in, in both countries, uh, both Syria and Iraq, an age of praetorian uh, instability. At the level of the system in this period, we see uh, that given the relatively unconsolidated, penetrated states, uh, which are characteristic of this period, regional political competition basically takes the form of discourse wars between the the rival, rival states over Arabism, uh, also the form of subversion, different states trying to subvert the other. It does not take the form of military confrontation. We're still talking about relatively weak states. But in this period, there is one state which stands out as consolidated, and that is Nasser's Egypt. It uh, emerges as a stable, populist, anti-imperialist version of authoritarianism, which becomes a model for other emerging states in the region and becomes a regional hegemon which promotes the hegemony of pan-Arabism. This is an era in which pan-Arabism as an identity, as a norm, achieves uh, for a period of about two decades hegemony. Also important in allowing this to happen is that we're in an age of bipolarity which helps Nasser to roll back British hegemony in the region so that for a period you have a regional system which is rather autonomous in its dynamics. Now, in this period, what do Syria-Iraqi relations look like? Uh, They are basically shaped by two issues. In the 50s, the big issue is dealing with British imperialism. The British are still in the region in the 50s, particularly in the period between 1954 and 58. You have a struggle for Syria going on between Egypt on the one hand, Iraq on the other hand, over the Baghdad Pact, which is basically a project which the British uh, have engineered to allow them to sustain their influence in the region. In Syria, you have the rise of the Ba'ath Party, which brings Syria into alignment with Egypt against Iraq and against the Baghdad Pact. That's decisive. This ushers in 
the UAR in which Egypt uh, and Syria briefly unite in 1958. Same year, you have the Iraqi revolution and the overthrow of, of the old regime in Iraq. These events basically put paid to British imperialism. The classic uh, text here, of course, is Patrick Seale's The Struggle for Syria. Now, if we fast forward to the 60s, the basic issue shaping Iraq-Syria relations is dealing with Nasserism, dealing with the, Ar the idea of Arab unionism. In 1963, the Ba'ath Party takes power in both Syria and Iraq. You have a curious situation where there is a joint pan-Arab leadership, so-called National Command of the Ba'ath Party, made up of both Syrian and Iraqi politicians. This uh, National Command convenes in Damascus the famous National Party Congress, the Sixth National Congress of the Ba'ath Party, which is composed and made up of delegates from both Syria and Iraq, iconic of this pan-Arab age. And in this Congress, Iraqi politicians play decisive and important roles which will shape Syrian politics. Something, a, a phenomenon which, is, which, is, which, is, uh, which betrays the fact that we're in an age of pan-Arabism where Iraqi politicians could be accepted as credible players inside Syrian politics because the felt community is this pan-Arab one. Well, um, the... Uh, the, the next episode uh, is, of course, uh, that uh, in Cairo, the leaders uh, of, the, of the three main pan-Arab states now, uh, Nasser, uh, who is, of course, the, uh, the acknowledged leader of pan-Arabism, and the leaders of the two Ba'ath parties meet, and what they're uh, about to do is to try and negotiate the reconstruction of an enlarged UAR, which will bring together the three states, Egypt, Syria, and Iraq, and if it happens, it will transform the Middle East. But, of course, we find that the, the, the two Ba'athist leaders, uh, feeling threatened by Nasser's uh, overwhelming dominance, try to balance against him for various reasons. The suspicions of these leaders are such that the negotiations fail, and uh, the, the new UAR does not come about. Um, the classic text here is Malcolm Kerr's uh, volume, uh, The Arab Cold War, where he begins with these negotiations and he tells us what went wrong and why this greater UAR didn't happen. Uh, as a result of this failure, though, you have uh, a struggle among the uh, pan-Arab forces uh, with the Ba'ath uh, at odds with Nasserism. In the struggle with Nasserism, the Ba'ath falls in Iraq, uh, but it uh, survives uh, in Syria. So uh, the next episode in the story, 1966, the Syrian Ba'ath itself splits between the old leadership and the new radical wing of the Ba'ath. And the older leadership is expelled, but they go to Iraq. They are welcomed in Iraq, where in 1968 the Ba'ath Party achieves power again. And so you get a situation where uh, the Ba'ath is now split into Iraqi uh, and Syrian branches, and uh, they are divided uh, over basically ideological issues such as... Uh, which uh, part of the Ba'athist uh, 
credo should take precedence? Should it be revolution in one country, as the Syrian radicals are saying, or should it be unionism, as the Ba'athist leaders in, in Iraq uh, are saying? As I said, in 1968, you had uh, the Ba'ath under Bakr and Saddam Hussein coming back to power in Iraq. Then in 1970, uh, Assad uh, takes power in Syria, throwing out uh, the, the radicals. Uh, in this period, uh, Assad uh, is trying to win legitimacy inside Syria by saying that he's going to reunify the Ba'ath Party and join with uh, the Ba'athists in Iraq. Uh, and so you, you have, with uh, Assad in power in Damascus and uh, Saddam Hussein and Bakr in, in Baghdad, you have the beginnings of Gan talk about reconciliation, reunifying the two parties. But once Assad has achieved consolidation of his power in Syria, uh, he is no longer interested in pursuing this unification. Uh, but as a result, uh, you get a situation where uh, intense rivalry between the two Baths in Syria and, and in Iraq uh, is the feature of the relationship between the two sides. And in this rivalry, uh, Basically, it is conducted by the fact that, there, that dissidents in each of the Ba'ath parties in Iraq and Syria are seeking support from the rival regime. Their rivalry takes uh, the form of trans-state subversion in which each tries to subvert the other through legitimacy wars in which each is claiming to be the real Ba'ath the most pan-Arab Ba'ath, and arguing that the other side is betraying Ba'athism. And the way the game is played is basically the two sides trying to recruit from the Ba'ath parties and the armies in the two sides uh, partisans who will act to overthrow the incumbent regimes and bring their own branch of the Ba'ath party to power. The, the classic uh, uh, text which... which uh, delineates this struggle is uh, Eberhard Kienle's Bath versus Bath. So by way of conclusion, uh, it seems to me that in this relationship, or excuse me, in this period, Syria-Iraq relations are symptomatic of the high permeability of the states, the hegemony of pan-Arabism uh, in the region. Okay, the next period... Uh, basically 1970 through 1990, could be called the, the Age of Realism, precipitated by war and war preparation, which gives the incentive for the consolidation of states, and oil, the availability of oil, particularly after the 1973 war and the oil boom, which gives the means for the consolidation of states. So if we look at the state level, what we find is uh, that states are now being consolidated. The formula for consolidation is authoritarian and neo-patrimonial. Regimes uh, are acquiring enhanced bureaucratic capabilities. The Ba'ath Party organizations in both Syria and Iraq uh, display a capacity to incorporate significant constituencies. 
partly as a result, particularly in Syria, of land reform, where uh, pro-regime pe- peasantry is created. In Iraq, it's more oil-funded development. But in either case, these, these two regimes are creating constituencies. They have considerable co-optive capabilities, that, and they are growing their military capabilities. And generally speaking, what the result is at the state level is what used to be quite uh, fragile and penetrated and, de- and, and unstable states are now uh, being stabilized. These states do, uh, uh, even though they appear to have found a formula to stabilize themselves, nevertheless have uh, vulnerabilities. Uh, in both, ca- and there are similar vulnerabilities in the two states. The the over reliance on sectarian asabia at the core. It's the Alawis in Syria. It's the Tikritis. In Iraq also, their state-building formula is over-reliant on rent to lubricate co-optation and patronage networks. And of course, rent is finite and it can run out. And one could say also that in terms of legitimizing themselves, they are also highly reliant on, on Arab nationalism. And though that is an asset in a sense that it is the way they try to legitimize themselves, uh, it also tends to get them into conflicts and into debilitating wars with Israel on the one hand, uh, Iran on the other. And yet, uh, in spite of this, uh, this vulnerability, these regimes in this period, 1970 to 90, proved to be remarkably uh, resilient. And the evidence of that is that both of them are, are able to survive what earlier they would not have survived, debilitating wars and revolts by Islamist movements in both cases. The regimes survive these. So that's what's happening at the state level, the, cons- the apparent consolidation of states. They fund they a formula to consolidate themselves. What, how is this reflected at the state's level, or sorry, at the state system level? What we see at the state system level is the states appear to be uh, solidifying into something quasi-Westphalian, that is, states where territorial sovereignty appears to be more established than it was before, where the states are now much seemingly less permeable to trans-state forces and ideological appeals. And also symptomatic of this phase is that you have uh, across the region, but particularly noticeable in, in uh, uh, Syria and Iraq is the, the emergence of militarized national security states. One might also say, almost say states built to, to conduct wars um, with enormous armies, uh, states involved uh, in uh, power balancing, basically against the main threats that they feel uh, in the case of Syria, it's from Israel. In the case of uh, Iraq, it, it is from Iran. Power balancing through arms races, through alliances. So it looks, it looks like a very realist sort of world has come about in, in, this, in this phase. And, and the classic text here uh, is Melek Mufti's uh, comparative analysis of how uh, the Iraqi and Syrian states are consolidated uh, in this period. Okay, so um, uh, 
in this uh, age of realism, um, what do Syrian Iraqi uh, relations look like? How how uh, are they symptomatic of this change in the way the state system looks like? Uh, their relations, and particularly their choices of alliances, it seems to me, uh, are symptomatic of the fact that that they in the region are are in a kind of period of, of transition from one of one the earlier period in which uh, trans-state ideology Arabism mattered in shaping alliances to uh, a new era in which uh, the balance of power is what uh, power balancing against threats from neighbors is what's is shaping alliances. So if we look at, at their relationships uh, in, the, in this period, we find, uh, first of all, there, there is, is, a, is a period when Iraq and Syria uh, come together, first against uh, Israel during the 1973 Arab-Israeli War, and then later on against uh, Sadat's Egypt in its pursuit of a separate peace with Israel, uh, Iraq, uh, and Syria coming together around 1978. And that one can see there's still a sort of pan-Arab logic in this, in this alliance making between the two. But the next episode, uh, which is marked by the Iran-Iraq War, shows something different. In this case, we find, uh, of course, um, that the, the, the two sides split with, with Syria aligning with Iran uh, against Iraq. Um, and here it does appear, uh, at least on the face of it, that it, that it is state interests and not Arabism and, and not even Baathism that is driving things, but rather Syrian Iraqi state interests balancing against threats is what's driving their, their alliances. Um, and yet, uh, uh, as they come into rivalry now, uh, with the beginning of the Iran-Iraq war with each other, that is Syria uh, and, and uh, Iraq are now rivals once again, no longer allies. Uh, what, what we find uh, is that their rivalry doesn't take really a realist uh, dimension. It, it isn't basically conducted uh, in milit- by military terms at all. Uh, but rather, uh, what we find is that in this period, each side, the Iraqi and the Syrian regimes, attempt to exploit mutual trans-state vulnerabilities. And it seems to me that that is, that is in some ways symptomatic of the fact that we're still talking about states which are some way, in some respects, uh, artificial. Uh, what we find... Uh, what I mean by this exploitation of, of trans-state vulnerabilities uh, is that Syria and Iraq uh, are using against each other, uh, for one thing, Euphrates water, for another thing, the trans-state pipelines, each trying to manipulate those, those interdependencies against the other. Also, uh, each uh, attempt to foster opposition forces in the opposing state. So, for example, Iraq backs the Muslim Brotherhood, which is rebelling against Assad uh, in the 80s. Syria, on the other hand, is hosting Kurdish and Shia dissidents uh, against uh, Iraq. Um, But what is interesting, it seems to me, and, and symptomatic of how the states are now somewhat, the regimes at least, are somewhat more consolidated, is that 
if, if one compares what's happening in this period to the earlier period of Ba'ath versus Ba'ath, remember in the earlier period, the rivalry between uh, Syria and Iraq was conducted by, by each trying to subvert uh, partisans in the Ba'ath parties and armies of the opposing regimes. But now we don't see that because those regimes relatively consolidated, impermeable uh, to this kind of behavior. So what, what the two regimes are doing in their contest with each other is basically uh, trying to, to exploit other kinds of vulnerabilities outside the two regimes. So, for example, uh, exploiting, uh, in each case, uh, particular groups that are not incorporated into the ruling regimes. That is to say, uh, the Kurds and Shia, the Syrians trying to incur, uh, to exploit against Saddam Hussein's regime, Kurdish and Shia dissidents, and Saddam Hussein trying to exploit uh, Sunni Muslim Brotherhood dissidents uh, against the Iraqi regime. So what does that tell us? It seems to me this this way in which their rivalry is conducted is, is, is sort of symptomatic of the fact that the states and the state system are, are in this period of transition from uh, the earlier period uh, of Arabism to this new period uh, of realism. Um, what is, what, this, what is, what kind of captures or iconic of the, of the fact that it is, it is still a transition or not really in the world of pure realism uh, is that we are not talking uh, at this period about consolidated nation states, a Syrian and Iraqi nation state. That that has not come about. Uh, Rather, what we've got still is two relatively artificial states, but now they are being held together by a kind of hard version of populist authoritarianism, Assad and Saddam. Okay, so uh, next period. The period, roughly speaking, from 1990 to 2011 could be called uh, a period of post-populism and U.S. hegemony in the region at large. If we look at what's happening at the state level, we see that across the region, uh, many of the states are falling into economic crises. This is partly because of the overdevelopment of the state relative to their economic bases, partly because of wars and arms races, plus the fact that rent, particularly hydrocarbon rents, which had financed a lot of the development of the states, rent becomes more scarce. After 1986, you have the oil bust. The 90s are a period of low oil prices, so rent is declining. So states are economically in trouble. Across the region, that results in famously what's what's called infita, that is the opening of status economies to private and to, to foreign capital. And this is paralleled by transformations in the character of the states. The populist authoritarianism of the earlier period gives way to what might be called post-populist authoritarianism in which the states change their social bases. The old attempt, the old incorporation of peasant and worker constituencies uh, is replaced by co-optation of crony capitalists foreign investors, the masses start to get pushed out, 
and uh, they uh, then uh, become uh, the natural constituents of the opposition, which in, across the region tends to take an Islamist form. And so we find uh, a situation where states begin to, 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 uh, to, be, uh, to find themselves uh, kind of pushed by economic problems on the one hand, by Islamist opposition on the other, and legitimacy deficits. At the level of the state's system, what's happening in parallel uh, to this this development at the state's level, development which I I suppose we could could, uh, summarize by saying at the state's level, states have reached, in a way, the peak of their state formation curve and they're showing the symptoms of declining because the economic crisis, the legitimacy deficits, the rise of Islamist opposition. What's happening in the state system? While the individual states are weakening, we find two things happening at the state system level. One is with the, with the end of bipolarity at the global level, the United States becomes the sole hegemon globally and also in the region. Uh, and as the United States asserts its hegemony in the Middle East, you have a tendency for almost all the regional states to start to bandwagon with Washington, except, though, that in the case of Syria and Iraq, they are constrained in how far they can go this way by the fact that their legitimacy, so insofar as it, as it survives, is still rests on Arab nationalism, which is not readily compatible with bandwagoning with the United States. But almost all the other regional states are sharply bandwagoning uh, with the United States. In parallel to this kind of uh, realist dynamic, what we find uh, also is that... Uh, you have at the, politi- at the level of global political economy, of course, the age of neoliberalism globally also spreading into the Middle East, having its impact at the economic level. Particularly for countries like Syria and Iraq, uh, they are increasingly uh, dependent uh, on, on, on Western markets because with the collapse of Eastern markets, they no longer have that alternative. So all the region states are being uh, subjected to kind of the hegemony of neoliberalism. Now, what are the symptoms of this transformation in states uh, and in the regional system uh, at the level of Syria-Iraq relations? Well, uh, what we find uh, in this period, roughly 1990 to 2011, is that um, Syria-Iraqi relations are going to be shaped by how to deal with this new reality of U.S. hegemony uh, in in the region. Now, in the 1990s, what we find, uh, the first decade of U.S. hegemony, is that Syrian and Iraqi responses to the new global changes uh, are sharply divergent. So uh, what we see in this respect uh, is that uh, in the case of Iraq, Iraq's solution uh, to its new economic vulnerability, to the decline of the USSR, the end of the the bipolar world, Iraq's solution is the invasion of Kuwait. 
in which, of course, Iraq is making a, a bid to solve its problems through hegemony in the Gulf and at, and at the Pan-Arab level. Of course, it, that leads uh, to uh, Iraq's defeat in the, uh, in the Gulf War of 1990-91. Iraq is brought under sanctions, uh, and this is the beginning of the decline, the further decline or deconstruction of, of the Iraqi state. But it can, uh, Iraq under Saddam continues in this period to defy the United States. So Iraq's at least initial solution to U.S. hegemony is to defy it, huh? to try and preempt it through the invasion of Kuwait, and then even after having lost in the Gulf War to continue uh, to, to defy U.S. hegemony. In the case of Syria, the solution uh, appears in some ways to be the opposite, the opposite solution to, the, to how to deal with U.S. hegemony. That is to say uh, that uh, Syria joins uh, the anti-Iraq coalition, joins the Americans in this respect. Uh, after the, the Gulf War of 1990, also uh, Syria under Assad joins the peace process with Israel under U.S. Um, U.S. brokerage, so basically, uh, while Iraq is defying, band, uh, balancing against the United States, Syria seems to be bandwagoning with the United States in this period. And uh, uh, getting ready also, uh, had, the, had the peace process succeeded, Syria getting ready also to, to start moving towards reintegration into, into the world capitalist market. Of course, uh, this solution also fails the Arab-Israeli peace process by, by the year 2000 for various reasons. Uh, uh, I should say the, the Syrian-Israeli uh, peace process fails. And, and so by roughly the year, the year 2000, we have uh, a situation where both the Iraqi and the Syrian solutions to how to deal with U.S. hegemony seemingly uh, have, have failed. Had they succeeded, arguably... Uh, on their, on their quite opposite tangents, both states would have acquired new resources uh, and could have resumed uh, consolidation or, or state, uh, resumed state formation, but they did not. Uh, they did not in both cases, they, they failed and uh, therefore are left uh, by the year 2000, both of them as, as, as vulnerable, both vulnerable, and that vulnerability will start to drive uh, in the second decade of U.S. hegemony, 2000 to 2010, will start to drive the two states back together. Having first diverged, taken quite different solutions to how to deal with U.S. hegemony, uh, the failure of both of their solutions uh, leads to uh, another episode starting in 2000 in which these states uh, begin to converge in their relations or their way of dealing with, with U.S. hegemony. Uh, here, the, the first uh, watershed event is, of course, the succession from Hafez to Bashar al-Assad uh, until, as long as Hafez is in power, uh, animosity between uh, Iraq and Syria is, uh, is, is relatively institutionalized. But once you have the leadership change in, in Syria, the, the way, in a way, is, is open for a convergence, uh, a moving together uh, of Syria and Iraq. And basically what brings them together is the oil pipeline deal in which uh, Iraq uh, uh, deal, makes the deal with Syria to try and 
and, and, and break out of the, the sanctions, and, and Syria will get out of this uh, uh, lots of oil rent needed to deal with its economic problems. That drives their alignment, the, 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 uh, the, the pipeline deal. Uh, that, of course, uh, brings Syria and Iraq together, but another thing that it does is it's, it's putting uh, Syria... Uh, on a collision course with the United States. And, of course, that continues as uh, Syria begins, as a result of its new alignment with Iraq, to oppose and try to break the sanctions uh, on Iraq. And uh, then as the U.S. drive to, to war uh, against Saddam's Iraq appears, uh, uh, Syria opposes it, uh, a very different position than the position that Syria took uh, in the uh, 1999 uh, U.S.-Iraq war. Of course, when, when the United States uh, uh, invades Iraq, uh, Syria uh, does everything it can to make it difficult for the Americans. It sponsors uh, Islamists who transit Syrian territory uh, to fight the U.S. occupation in Iraq. On the other hand, Iraqi uh, Ba'athists uh, fleeing uh, from Iraq are given safe haven uh, in Syria. So um, you have the two countries seemingly brought together uh, in opposition to U.S. hegemony. So what the driving factor in Syria-Iraq relations is, uh, I argue, in this period, uh, is basically how these, these two states weakened uh, can adapt to either somehow exploit or resist the reality of U.S. hegemony uh, in the region. And at first they diverge, but then in the second period uh, they are brought together uh, by how to deal with U.S. hegemony uh, uh, in the region. Now, um, that brings us to uh, the next period, which uh, could be called, I suppose, the age uh, of state deconstruction in the region. The, um, well, the, the precipitants, of course, of, of this period of state deconstruction in the case of Iraq is the U.S. invasion of Iraq, in which the Iraqi state is decapitated, deconstructed. You have uh, unleashed a sectarian civil war. Uh, this spills over at the region level in increasing Sunni-Shia discourse wars. It's manifested in the emergence of two alliances, the Iran-led resistance axis, which is kind of Shia Levin versus the Sunni pro-Western moderate axis throughout the 2000s. That's the basic alignment uh, in the region. So that's the deconstruction of Iraq sort of unleashes uh, consequences across the whole region. It's a decade later, but you have a similar uh, deconstruction in the case uh, of Syria, where it's precipitated by, by the uprising uh, in Syria and the regime's uh, violent response to the protests. This eventually turns into a sectarianization and militarization of the struggle in Syria, and Syria becomes uh, an epicenter 
of a regional power struggle, much like Iraq, framed uh, in, in sectarian terms. Now, um, in this period, um, what are the features of Syria-Iraq relations? Basically, uh, they, they are shaped with how the two regimes will deal with state deconstruction in uh, the other state. In what we see in this period is that both the Syrian and Iraqi governments try to intervene in the power struggles in the other state in order to prevent the arise of hostile regimes. So we see, for example, uh, after Saddam's regime is, is destroyed by the U.S. invasion, uh, Assad, uh, in dealing with this reality, goes from first opposing uh, the U.S.-backed Iraqi regime to later accommodating with it and striking alliances with various Iraqi factions. So for symptomatic of that, for example, is that in uh, the period before the 2010 uh, elections in Iraq, uh, Syria uh, allows uh, one of the Iraqi politicians, Alawi, uh, to come to, uh, to Syria and campaign among uh, Iraqi refugees in Syria. And at first it looks as if uh, Assad is going to back uh, Iyad Alawi. Later on, he decides instead to support uh, Maliki in the 2010 elections. Then after the Syrian uprising, starts the deconstruction of the Syrian state, uh, we find a similar situation where the regime in Iraq, Maliki's regime, uh, also has to consider how to deal with that situation uh, in um, in, in Syria, and here we find that uh, Maliki uh, goes from at first seeing Assad's regime as uh, a threat. Uh, he initially sees Assad's regime uh, as having tried to destabilize uh, his regime by by backing uh, Sunni Islamists in Iraq. Uh, to later to later perceiving the Assad regime as a bulwark uh, against. Sunni Islamists in both Syria and Iraq, taking the view that uh, if the Assad regime is overthrown and replaced by a Sunni Islamist regime, that that would empower uh, Maliki's Sunni rivals uh, in Iraq. So that's pretty much uh, the situation uh, as it looks today. Um, we have a, a situation where... Uh, there are many symptoms uh, uh, of state deconstruction. One is certainly the way uh, that uh, you have uh, alliances uh, between Sunni and Shia cut, cutting across both states. Uh, that is to say, uh, a situation coming about where uh, where the the the, the spillover of the conflict so easily between Iran and Iraq uh, seems to me to be a, a symptom of, of the deconstruction of the states and also uh, of, in some ways, how still, in some respects, artificial the, stu the two states are. Also symptoms uh, uh, of the deconstruction of the states is the loss of territorial control in both cases, uh, where the central regimes are... Uh, find it uh, that they've lost control of aspects of their territory. Uh, 
portions of the territory come under the control of groups whose identity is different from those in the capital. Uh, you've also got uh, a situation where uh, the, the idea that the, the, the boundaries that were initially put in place might be completely uh, uh, reconsidered uh, as a result of the insurgencies, which are cutting across uh, state boundaries in, in both cases. So by way of, of basically uh, summarizing, um, we have uh, a picture of the kind of rise and fall of state formation uh, in the region. Uh, we have uh, at the beginning a period of weak oligarchic regimes which are overthrown by pan-Arab revolutions, ushering in a period of Praetorianism, trans-state Ba'athist politics, in which alliances and rivalries uh, cut across state boundaries. This is followed by a period where you have the consolidation uh, of rather similar Ba'athist regimes, which appear rather impermeable, and rivalry increasingly in this period seems to take the form of power balancing, the age of realism, seemingly, has arrived. But then, the next period, beginning in the 90s, we see that, in fact, the states were overdeveloped in some ways, and particularly in a period of state uh, of U.S. hegemony, these states uh, find themselves under all sorts of pressures, and they have to find ways of adapting, and initially, at least, their adaptation their attempt to deal with uh, their vulnerabilities in U.S. hegemony take quite different uh, routes with uh, Iraq opting for war, the invasion of Kuwait, Syria opting for attempted peace process uh, with Israel. Both of these solutions fail, and this, in a way, opens the door to the next period in which both states, uh, now quite vulnerable, uh, are deconstructed through somewhat varying combinations of external intervention and internal rebellion. So that we arrive at a period where Iraq and Syria together uh, become seemingly epicenters of a sectarianization of regional politics spreading out from these two states to the region at large and putting at risk uh, indeed the Versailles settlement which initially created these two separate states. So thank you, I'll, st I'll stop there. <laughs>